All right, folks. Okay, Nagana go. My name is Michelle Robinson. I always start by trying to acknowledge uh, we're on Blackfoot territory by saying my name in Blackfoot. Dekots Nagotine is Satu Dene, which is what I actually am. And uh, yeah, I'm proud to be a part of the Satu Dene. I try not to show too much favoritism to our other Treaty 7 members, uh, Sutina, who are Dene, and uh, always acknowledge the Stony Nakoda, Wesley Chiniki Bears Paw Nations as they sign Treaty 7 with the Bears, with the Blackfoot Confederacy. Blackfoot Confederacy is Siksika, Bagani, uh, Gainai, and south of the border, the Blackfeet Nation. And uh, yeah, it's always important to acknowledge that boundary. Uh, that's why you see the Canadian flag and the US flag get stampede because Blackfoot Confederacy acknowledges that boundary was put on the, and placed upon them. So yeah, so I always wanna start with a land acknowledgement. Um, feeling a little off today. So I'm just going to kind of let folks speak about this subject. So um, for folks who are just tuning in, listening to the podcast, we are covering Reclaiming Power in Place, the final report of the National Inquiry into Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Girls, Volume 1B. And we were focusing on Chapter 11, which is pages 83 all the way to 166. And yeah, this one is a really important one. And I think it's really relevant considering the attack on the trans community as well. So um, now, in this book club, we always let uh, non-Indigenous um, wait to speak and let the Indigenous speak first. Uh, but Marnie said that she had to go early. So I think we're just going to make that exception today and let Marnie uh, reflect about what she read and uh, yeah, how she's feeling about chapter 11. Thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate this book club for reading this and the TRC as we've done. I, I, uh, I print this out because reading online does just makes my brain crazy. And um, I've written all over it. <laughs> um, I suppose when I read things like this, I have to pause a lot and, and uh, just absorb it, let it process through me. It's very easy for me to feel such outrage, such rage, and such grief that I, I get lost in those feelings instead of paying attention to what happened to other people, if you see what I mean. Um, so there were parts of this that were so beautiful, so beautiful. Um, and it's when the Indigenous people are talking about healing, and it feels so grounded and whole, and um, so I just, there's this, on page 126, when somebody talks, there, one of the things that fascinated me about this whole piece was about language and the importance of language, um, uh, and at the Law Society, when I sing or give a teaching or speak in the language, I feel I'm changing the molecules of the space. <laughs> yeah. And the, the way the Inuit name, the names from the Inuit come down. 
Um, so there's a lot of beauty in here. A lot of the stories. I mean, they're 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 also very difficult. But some of the healing stories are beautiful. And what I learned about language and about indigenous practices, I always appreciate. Um, and then there are also columns where I just have written excuse my language, fuck us, because of what white people did, what the settlers did, and the presumptions with which we came in, you know, thinking that we were not the savages. It's just, it's kind of, it's beyond belief. Um, the, uh, early on, it talked about um, how indigenous peoples are over-researched, and then nothing's done. And the stress that comes from having the research repeated over and over and over, the stories having to be told over and over and over and nothing changing. Yeah, that's that, that really, that went very deep. And one of the things I'm, I know I'm being scattered here. I'm sorry, I didn't expect, actually, I didn't expect to speak, Never mind, speak first. So, um, one of the things that, that really felt like a, a weaving through this, even when it talked about banishment, um, is, is the power and the healing truth of community and how so many of the white imposed so-called healings are individual and they're done, they're supposed to happen in a short frame of time and that community is what really heals. Um, I, I was in a different meeting a few days ago where somebody was talking about how self-care isn't really about going to get a pedicure. It's about being in community. And I thought that was, that was powerful. So I don't know that I have much more to say or, or anything really, except that I'm grateful I read it. I love the beadwork as an act of resistance. Wow. Wow. The friends I know who do beadwork and um, yeah, it's, it's a very healing, powerful thing. And um, and talking about poverty and houselessness and how we criminalize it and how um, you know and I don't know if it was in this in this or somewhere else the the conversation about hidden houselessness, especially for women who stay in relationships that they know are bad for them because it's the only way for them to have a home. It's, the, it's their, their solution to houselessness is to be in a bad relationship. And um, as I read and read about the, the two-spirit component of this healing, I too was thinking about what's happening with the trans community here in Calgary and across, across Turtle Island. Um, yeah, so anyway, I don't, I don't have anything sensible or a lot to say, except that this was a very powerful chapter and I'm grateful to have read it and I will watch the podcast so I can hear from the rest of y'all. Well, Marnie, I always appreciate you chiming in and letting us know. And, uh, you know, when you have to go, you have to go. So I just wanted to give you a chance because you're, you know, part of the book club. And I, um, I think it's important that people hear other people's points of view for sure. Um, so Michelle, I, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. No, um, I just thought I'd start talking when you're ready. Go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say one other thing and, and is that reading this, because this isn't history, right? <laughs> 
this isn't history this is now it's it's like it's being shown what genocide means in real time and i i hate to say this in this context but that's what this is yes that's what this is about and it's, no and, and that's why it's important you say it and you get it because it needs to be named yeah, I say it online, I say it in my TikToks, I say it in my podcast, and I just feel like settlers don't get it. Like, it's not something that's just in the past, it's current government policies, and they're complicit. Everyone is complicit in it, and that's why it's, um, when we undermine the word genocide, like, it, it, it's so... I feel like we'll never get to reconciliation because you're not willing to hear the truth part yet, right? So, um, so yeah, so thank you, Marnie. Uh, do we have anyone else who joined that identifies as Indigenous before I get going here? Just gonna go through. All right, well, I'm gonna start talking then. So, you know, um, this particular chapter was, it just meant the world to me because uh, the last couple of weeks has just been protest after protest after protest at the uh, drag um, library readings, and it's just so incredibly disappointing. I, um, you know, I think of all of the folks that would come to a, a classroom and, you know, be dressed in, in anything, and we would never vilify them, you know, and when it comes to folks in drag, we do. And I, I hope that folks after reading chapter 11, see the absolute problem that we have in this country with not funding Two-Spirit. Because, you know, it, it's not just homophobia, it's not just transphobia, but it's also racism and colonialism, right? So like a lot of um, these so-called equity, inclusion, diversity um, ideas never really get to colonialism. Right. And they never really talk about stolen land, anything like that. The point about two spirit that people forget is that like the, the straight agenda was imposed on these lands with colonialism was imposed on these lands with Christianity and all of these Christian pastors that continue to spout their hate. They are just continuing exactly what this was the, the, the very policy that was started years ago, you know, and, and they don't even see it. And ironically, like I, I've been blocking a lot of folks that identify as a so-called ally, but are so quick to say not all settlers, not all Christians, you know, and not all white people. And it's like, well, you're all complicit in what we're seeing today. All of this hate being directed because you're not challenging a racism, not challenging homophobia, not challenging transphobia. And as this clearly laid out, this chapter 11, there is no infrastructure for us. So for folks who don't know, I was uh, one of the co-founders of Voices and I was one of the co-founders of uh, Sovereign Spirits. And both organizations were urban, two-spirit um, organizations directed to help the two-spirit population. And we could not get it going uh, for either. Um, you know, the Voices was too broad because it was QT BIPOC. And uh, we felt that it wasn't right for us to try to speak for the brown community, the black community, um, you know, all, all of the different intersectionalities, because there's so much diversity in QT BIPOC. And then with Sovereign Spirits, 
the idea of trying to decolonize nonprofit in order to become a nonprofit it was just too much of a barrier for folks to be able to get to that second part. So we just really struggled trying to get that going. And I hope that this particular chapter really emphasizes why that is. Um, the lack of infrastructure for Two-Spirit for Indigenous QT BIPOC organizations in general. And then of course, there's so much more to it, but it, it's just so relevant to amplify in a moment where there's so many attacks against the queer community. And um, so I, I thought that it was really important that the Two-Spirit people of Manitoba was included in this and their manifesto. I, I went online and had a look at some of their resources that they had. And of course, they um, linked to a lot of the other folks as well. Um, Marnie talked a little bit about ethical and empowering research. Uh, I can tell you locally, it was Josie Nipponak of Awaton Healing Lodge. She was the one who taught me about OCAP, which is uh, done by the First Nation Information Governance Center. And OPAC principles are ownership, control, access, and um, possession of research because we're so over-researched. And then if it's done with a white lens, it's not seen through an anti-racism lens. It's not see seen through that anti-colonial lens. It's seen through uh, white privilege, right? And looking down at indigenous people as inferior people. So um, I didn't see that really mentioned here, but I thought it was really important that it was laid out here uh, for folks to understand the gravity of that because I've been researched in, I volunteer for lots of research, but um, ultimately that doesn't mean I get to one, see the results or to have control or access or possession of any of that, right? So um, equitable representation, like the thing about indigenous people is we're so diverse, right? So it's really hard. Uh, I, I have uh, folks on TikTok say, you know, you can't speak on behalf of First Nations. And I'm like, I don't, I've never done that. If you listen to my podcast, I say, I do not speak on behalf of all Indigenous. I just share my road is what I know. And, you know, they talked about the lack of in Inuit and Métis perspectives, as well as Two-Spirit perspectives throughout this entire chapter, which I think is really important because a lot of people, it, the most, um, Marginalized people obviously can't speak, right? So uh, strengthening accountability. You know, I, I was kind of cynical. First Nations became cynical about the impacts of various commission reports in the past. Could it be that they were not integral part of governmental action plans? So any of you know me, I've talked about RCAP, I talk about the TRC, I talk about the MMIW report and the lack of action you see across the board at all different levels of government, but also um, within community, right? So Canadians have calls to justice, Canadians have calls to action. And what do you see? Not, not much being done there. So there was a recommendation for an oversight committee, safeguards, communication and partnership, increased public education and advocacy. So I really was pissed about this because like right now Calgary's pretending to be progressive and pretending like if by putting in a bylaw by not protesting around um, libraries or sports infrastructures that that will somehow you know help the safety 
for folks who are in the queer community and for the children trying to hear this. But this was a missed opportunity, increased public education and advocacy. Like why on earth do these people who claim to be for reconciliation and stopping gendered violence, why on earth are they not referencing this or the TRC or RCAP or colonialism reconciliation? I know why, but I'm trying to get folks who identify as settlers to get it and to start pushing their elected officials, pushing their community, educating their moms, their dads, their brothers, their sisters, whoever it is that is despicably ignorant on this on these subjects, but uh, especially city council having such an opportunity, the chief of police for that matter, having such an opportunity. And frankly, the one white trans advocate for Calgary, not a peep of this coming out of their mouth either, right? So, and I just wanted to point it out to you all because it's so clear to me, but for some reason, uh, nobody else can see it. Uh, an Indigenous rights tribunal, tribunal to supplement the work from the existing human rights tribunal and with an acknowledgement of the of UNDRIP. We don't hear anybody talking about UNDRIP. You know, a two spirits right to exist, right? We're not having that conversation at all. So disappointing. Core principles and values for safety, uh, wellness as a whole, supports of well-being for whole families and communities. Um, I thought there was some really great quotes in this. Um, really made me happy. The Haudenosaunee example of healing through culture was good. Um, the importance of coordinated services. Like I tell you, just working a little bit with Bear Clan and the police, like, to, and well, and for that matter, the Reconciliation Action Group and the Alliance for the Common Good, like you can see these four groups claiming to have kind of the same idea when it comes to, you know, change, safety, reconciliation, but we're all so siloed. Um, and that's not even including the different orders of government, right? Federal or provincially funded action tables. You know, I've been trying to watch the um, premier and her concept, but she's so busy putting out stupid fires that she created herself. We're not even having conversations about this. Um, Co-located services, um, hubs, wraparound support cares, like, you know, I... I <laughs> Yeah, we don't have that. I could give endless examples of that. The importance of cultural safety. I mean, at the end of the day, I can't smudge in most places. And, you know, I'd, I'll never forget one of our former members who like demanded I smudge. And like that's that does not create cultural safety in any capacity. Um, and then there was a lot of conversation on education, but you know, I, I'm just going to share with folks who are new. Uh, there's a musician, his name is Jeremy Dutcher, and he's one of the last uh, language speakers of his nation. And he is really focused on, on revitalizing the language. And, um, you know, going to see him, I wasn't prepared for the morning I had for my own language and not being able to do it. So I just, I want everyone here to imagine um, today being ripped apart from your mom and dad at an early age, told you are never allowed to speak English, beaten for it. And then supposedly we acknowledge that was wrong at some point. 
and then you hear somebody singing in English, the overwhelming impact that might have on you. That's how I felt when I went to see Jeremy Dutcher. And I know um, for me, not knowing my language will absolutely um, takes out 90% of my culture. I can't even understand what my elders could possibly be trying to communicate to me when they have to think of a concept, try to translate it to English and then tell me it in English. It's not the same. You get lost in translation. So I just wanted to throw that at people because it talks about the need for, uh, you know, language um, and interpreters and there being funding for that. But I mean, if I were to start that goal today of learning my language, I would be doing it 100% out of pocket, right? And trying to do it with no resources and then trying to, like, it, that's not sustainable in a forced economic Western um, structure, right? And people don't see that barrier because for them, maybe it is easy to go to Spanish classes on Saturday mornings and learn a language. Well, I, I can't just go get Satu Dene language um, lessons on a Saturday morning somewhere. I, I can't do that. And then not to mention all the trauma attached to it. And so I just wanted to throw that out at people. You know, if I devoted the rest of my life to this, I still don't know if I could be a teacher of a language that was purposely erased. So I wanted to throw that at folks too because that is the foundation of Indigenous knowledge. So it was really hard to read that. I uh, talked a lot about education. Um, you know, it, I, I'm, I'm starting to get really upset about the lack of understanding about all of this. I don't know how much more education we have to do. At this point, I feel like it's pretty purposeful. So, and I love this quote. Anti-racism education is important because learning Bannock is not gonna help change your views. It's one of the biggest criticisms I have of the city of Calgary. They expect someone to, like me to come in for free, teach everybody how to you know, make moccasins or, or cook Bannock and not see their role in structural racism, not see their role in structural colonialism and not see that funding going towards education for language and you know, elders and such, right? Like, it's just not there. There needs to be more services to be trained in the two-spirit community. The Indigenous context is different. Uh, yeah, I can tell you there's no one knocking on my door asking for this training. Zero, zero people. You know, that, that's the reality. So we know it, we know it's important, but there's no impetus by community associations, sports clubs, anybody to learn any of this, right? Like zero. So these recommendations are really good. Mandatory training for public sector workers. We already know that from TRC 57. That was supposed to be implemented. Nobody's done it. Continuous training and professional development. Context-specific training. Training and collaboration. Curriculum integration community orientation programs delivered by local organizations. There's no funding for any of this, you know, at the end of the day. I'm a facilitator for mending broken hearts. Nobody's knocking on my door for that, right? Unless I'm willing to do it for free. Um, accountable social services. 
Um, I think this particular group trying to talk about that in a different context with a reconciliation action group can see there is no accountability in social services. Uh, I had a black friend of mine reach out and be like, hey, my indigenous family member is losing their kid. What do I do? I'm like, I'm sorry. I guess you should have done more when you had a position of power and could have changed more. <laughs> you know, like it, it just, it's not translating that this work has to be done right now. And our children are committing suicide because they're being ripped apart from their families, uh, sexually assaulted in a lot of these group homes or by foster families you know like people do not get this ongoing genocide is continuing continuity of care yeah um i can tell you i've helped folks short term in in crisis moments and there's not long term like it, it was volunteer there's no funding for that uh we have one person who is employed by the government of Alberta, but that is a new position that started. Um, and it sounds like they're always fighting for funding, which is ridiculous. Providing long-term funding for program sustainability is deemed important. Duh. Like, this is minimum. This should be known. Um, cultural knowledge and connection disconnection and dislocation. I really hope people really understood the assimilation program and how harmful that is on your self-esteem, everything. Uh, shifts to societal and family values. I should say colonial values. Um, you know, and I'm just, I'll just read this. Men have lost their teachings. They've been struggling with the consequences of residential schools, drugs, and alcohol. They have crushed spirit and have forgotten that when they were born, they received a gift as an indigenous person but events like residential school have crushed their gift. And um, that it is important because the patriarchy was brought in with colonialism. And for some reason, that's just not grasped and understood. For many, uh, correctional facilities are where they get cultural support. Many people for the first time have been to a sweat when they were in jail. So they go back there again to access that. Um, I really thought that was important to acknowledge because, um, you know, the first time I had sweat was actually through a volunteer program through health services. And it's really sad that it takes that to get that, you know, like it's just not so common as people think. Um, interpersonal violence and families under attack. Um, I, I can't stress enough how awful child services are teachers, doctors, nurses, how racist they are for calling um, social services on our people on a regular basis. This kind of touched on a lot of it uh, about centering families in the recommendations and um, the you know crisis of child welfare. This organization of the Reconciliation Action Group is starting to understand it, but this really helped laid it out. And I hope that folks who are legitimately trying to advocate can see how problematic the current system is. Um, culture revitalization and in urban settings. So that's part of the reason why I do the sacred fire in an urban setting. And um, yeah, I had, uh, had one today, but there's a lot to say about that. So 2SLGBTQQIA identity and inclusion. 
Um, yeah, I just don't think Canadians understand the gravity of that when they come into my world and start talking about how good Jesus was and how the new Christians just don't understand. Beadwork is an act of resistance. Um, I respect other people can do that. I don't. Um, I think that me trying to find the words to advocate for and, and educate is enough for me. Like we only have so many, so much emotional capacity. And the expectation is for every Indigenous person to come kind, be nice, say it in a white uh, uh, way that, that doesn't hurt their feelings. So there's no white fragility and know our culture and share our culture and do all of this for free. So and I actually, I don't believe in that. And um, I do this book club because I'm going to be reading it and you guys have a choice to come with me or not. <laughs> And thankfully, a lot of you choose to. Fostering Inuit values and culture, the naming system, I, I would really think that's really interesting to read about. Um, I, I hope that folks understand the gravity of that. Inequities in health services. Um, I had um, a friend today talking about that. I, I laid so much tobacco. We are just not getting health services at all, even in an urban setting. And, you know, I was in Lethbridge and I could not access a doctor. So that's really problematic. Um, the gaps in healthcare. Oh, another thing I was going to mention was that Dr. Pamela Roach uh, from the University of Calgary recently put out a study showing how uh, one in four doctors in Alberta just outright admit they don't want to deal with Indigenous uh, patients, like just outright say it. Right. So and those are the ones willing to say it. I suspect it's like 75% of them, frankly. Um, and that's that anti-Indigenous bias that they've been taught. Um, so new models for mental health and healing. I really love this section, but I, I'm really cynical and I just see it as like things we're not ever going to get because we're I live in Alberta and our premier is batshit crazy and their voters are too. So um, substance use treatment. Um, right now in Alberta, we're having, you know, forced police uh, trauma, which we know is going to be detrimental. And I feel like they're purposely, even though they know the evidence, they're going to do it anyway, just to kill us. So uh, for someone like me, who's taught to deal with trauma, it's heartbreaking to watch. Um, Prenatal and ment and maternity care, that's very um, triggering for me. For many of you who know, the whole reason why I got active in politics was because of my birth experience that I had at Peter Lockheed. Uh, the uh, positive outcome was at least we got midwifery funded, but at the end of the day, um, we don't have enough Indigenous midwives. And frankly, I, I just, I know the racism they experience and and even like white midwives get prejudiced as well so the amount of healthcare services that are not available for 2s lgbtq2 plus um that's also incredibly heartbreaking and the state of alberta right now is it's just heartbreaking so healing programs for men and boys for folks who are in the indigenous community you will hear over and over how there's not um, enough stuff for the men, how the women and children rightfully get all the services, but there's just should be some for men as well. 
So they need safe spaces to discuss emotions, programs to support allyship for uh, misogyny and violence against women. And so they talked a little bit about the Moose Hide campaign and such, but um, I just wanted to amplify, uh, I've seen Sonny Campbell and he and this AIM group chapter here in Calgary are trying to do the right thing. So they cleaned up the uh, temporary memorial that was at City Hall this weekend. And I brought, um, you know, broom, ice breaker and, uh, and a shovel and tobacco. Okay, thanks, Marnie, you take care. And, uh, you know, it, just to try to encourage them, give them smokes to encourage them because, you know, they're trying to stay sober. They're trying to walk a good path. They're trying to walk the red road. Uh, they were just drumming and singing as they were doing it, which is exactly what you need as you do that type of ceremony. So I was really proud of them. And I know, um, you know, it, it takes time to heal. Anyway, there's also the Sober Crew, um, and I'm trying to think of some of the other organizations locally of the men trying to walk a good way here. So security, I have tried so hard to talk to people about how, as Indigenous women in Two-Spirit, this place is not safe. My hope is that these, um, this list of inequities and security, talking about poverty, really helped folks maybe understand the gravity of this issue. Um, I'm glad they talked about the Manitoba minimum wage, or um, sorry, basic income, uh, access to housing or shelter for folks who follow me. This was talked about as an emergency in December when the city decided they were gonna take the doors off all the shelters just to purposely just uh, kill indigenous people who are homeless and uh, dismember them, obviously. So it, it's just so awful. Um, and something they kind of touched on here that I, I don't think folks understand that shelters are policing, right? Like I, I don't think folks understand that these shelters are not safe places for indigenous people. And that's why women are so at risk because they're so uh, violent and the settlers and such that are in charge of these programs because they're never indigenous. They over-police us in them as well. And I hope that some of this kind of came out uh, for folks to understand the gravity of it and how to address it. But I, I just don't like wet shelters. It's like the very opposite of everything that Jason Kenny and Danielle Smith are, are even going towards. So um, education and employment. You know, um, I'm supposed to talk about, I'm, I'm gonna be on a couple of panel discussions about employment. And um, yeah, I just, I, I know this didn't touch any of the things that we really need to be doing here. And, you know, it talks about promotion of careers in the trades. I'm a Boilermaker's daughter. My daughter is in a trade school. Um, I would like to see the promotion of careers in, you know, other, other ways as well. I just feel like Indigenous are always like basically the slaves, manual laborers to go into unions that go into trades. And I, I'm so sick of it, but that's every damn report. Well, maybe we should be promoting the trades. Yes. Why? Why? Why us? Why aren't we being promoted into places of education? 
why aren't we being you know encouraged to be in these positions of leadership to teach i know why you know why but they don't know why it just bothers me yeah so again here um on page 151 you know practices to enhance security for uh two-spirit people the availability of uh, gender neutral washrooms and change facilities like Mount Royal University is supposed to be progressive. They finally just got one. You know, I, I just feel like Calgary and Alberta is so backwards on all of this and all of these so-called so leaders, none of them are talking about these issues and, and the fight against trans and non-binary people is right now. And it's right here in these pages and they're just missing it. Strengthening community ties, there would have to be trust, low barrier, safe spaces. Yeah, it's so painful, the lack of stuff there is here. Um, and I haven't even got into the justice part, but I've kind of, maybe we'll get to that part after. So I'm just going to pass it to other people to see how folks feel about maybe some of the things that I had said, or maybe some of the things that they had read and go from there. So I'll just start at the top here. We'll go Kat, Jen, Marla, then Mike, and go from there. Thank you. Um, I also wanted to thank you, Michelle, for all your advocacy, your activism, your showing up at all these protests, which takes an incredible amount of energy, I know, and strength, which you have. So I really appreciate it. Um, I wish I could be there more often with you. I totally agree. Chapter 11 is a kick-ass chapter. I mean, if you're only going to read one chapter in this whole report, and you know, throughout these meetings, I've been advocating people read the whole report, but this report, this chapter tells you the issues. It tells you the solutions. Just do it. Just do it. I mean, yeah, funding. Yeah. The only way to get funding is to harass your politicians. So that's what we got to start doing. And vote in, I don't know if you can trust any politician, but vote in better people. I don't know. But people who are more willing and open to, to listening. I know they say they do, but they just, just end up disappointing us anyway. But uh, yeah, there is hope. We're We've read it, we know it, we're gonna do it. And I, well, I shouldn't speak for everybody, but I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna be on these things and try and encourage others to as well. Jen, you're up next. And then Marla on standby, please. Yeah, can you hear me? I, I'm having technical difficulties tonight. Um, a question for you, Kat, sorry if I can ask, when you talk about politicians, is there a, a method that you ferret them out? <laughs> um, is there, is there, like, do you guys talk about who is, is actually being proactive and respectful in this room? We, I mean, among, I'm a member of Reconciliation Action Group, and we um, have tried in the past to question municipal politicians, um, sent them all questionnaires, which they all responded to, um, uh, also school boards too, 
And I mean, a lot of them did say sort of, quote unquote, the right things. So um, it's just following up on these things that they're saying and holding them to account. Um, there is no way to ferret out a good, a good politician. I, I don't know because they all say they're gonna do things just to get in office. And then when they're in office, maybe they have good intentions. Maybe they want to do the work and find it's too challenging, too difficult, too hard to, or not. Maybe they just are lying to get in and then they'll do whatever the hell they want um, to maintain status mm -hmm. quo, which we've, we've also got to hold them to account for that. So, yeah. I mean, UCP obviously is a huge disaster for the province, um, NDP, they're the only alternative. They're not so great either, but they're slightly better than UCP. So Thank I, you for I wish I had the answer for you. <laughs> Thank you. Um, I actually don't have a lot to contribute. Uh, like I've mentioned before, um, I, I'm here to learn. I'm here to absorb. I appreciate everybody's perspective um, and in allowing me to, to learn. Um, I don't know where I fit in yet. I don't know um, what I can do except learn and, and figure that path out. Marla, would you like to speak? Yeah. Um, I, Michelle, I think you touched on so many things that I had gotten out of this chapter too. I still want to um, highlight some of the things that really stuck out to me, but, but I think, um, so my, my day job is working with organizations that work with seniors. Uh, and it was interesting, like a lot of the parallels in terms of lack of funding, not being cognizant of what's happening in individual communities, um, you know, brushing them aside we have no data on on them either right so i think in in some ways this was really impactful for me uh yeah just to kind of carry some of these stories forward and i found myself rereading a lot of it just to try and like not just read it like you're reading a book right to try and make it sink in and um take notes and remember and be able to carry this information forward I it really was a powerful chapter um I think the politics in Alberta is totally depressing I uh, you know Michelle what you're doing and with those of us attending I guess you know it's it's like slow little bits of turning the ship around because the only way politics is going to change in Alberta is if we get everyone to change those that are voting PC in power. <laughs> Cause it's just, what, what do you do? Like it, it's so you throw your hands up when you vote another way and it's just, it does nothing. Um, so I think it's the long, slow road, which is, or, or you move out of the province, but that's not feasible for all of us. I would like to be able to toss them all away, I guess. As, some of the ones that just don't seem to care about anything. Um, anyway, um, Michelle, I think.
Thank you for that. I was trying to Google that site and um, I'm, I'm gonna dig into that about governance um, because the, yeah, that, that section on ethical research and being over-researched and over-consulted was, was um, so true. And I know in, in, I don't know, it's probably a couple of years ago that I had read some articles about indigenous communities being able to take back their data which they never should have had to do. It should have been their data to begin with. Um, but kind of building that structure where they are the ones collecting the data and they are the ones that own the data and they are the ones that decide how um, that data is shared, if it is. OCAP principles, okay, thank you. Um, so yeah, I was really happy to see that in here. And and the when they touched on um, how when two-spirit non-binary, um, you know, when they die, they're they're not accounted for. And that hit me. I didn't think of that part of it, that when they die, they're classified according to their biological sex. Well, of course they are in a colonial system, but it just it um i just ne had never thought of that before and that was really powerful um the same thing about you know not everyone speaks for one person doesn't speak for entire communities so you know having those voices of metis inuit two spirit um oh, oh gosh i could go on and on maybe i should cut myself short here <laughs> Um, when, oh, one of the things about holistic approach to considering the whole family. So um, again, this is something that comes up in my work and we um, interact with an organization that deals, that works with seniors and elders and um, they are our reminder. You know, the Western system is not the way to do it. You can't deal with the individual the individual issue and the individual in the community. You have to deal with the whole community. Um, so that was, you know, made a lot of sense to me reading that through, through this section. Um, about the language, there was a part where they said colonial policies, and I'm ad-libbing a little bit here, that sever indigenous women from their communities are particularly effective a devastation of Indigenous languages. As a result, every Indigenous language in Canada is now at risk. I mean, what the heck? So, you know, and then that made me think of um, Mary Simon when th there was such backlash over her. Who cares? Like, she speaks her own language. I don't, like, what, what is the problem? Um, yeah, and the Bannock quote, I thought that was a good one too. I had also written that down. Learning about Bannock is not going to help change your views. Interestingly enough, um, a few years ago, I went uh, to visit some food banks uh, on my way up to Fort McMurray. And uh, when they hosted us, they served us Bannock. And um, it was awkward. Like, you know, we didn't need to be catered to by any means. And um, anyway, just some reflections. Um, continuity of care, again, this makes me think about seniors. 
long-term trusting relationships with service providers are what people need to help them get through long-term complex situations that they are dealing with uh, themselves and in their communities. And, um, and I like this, uh, this section, uh, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing it right, AWI, A-A-W-I, AWI. Uh, one is who they're supposed to be, where it talked about not um, language not being gendered. Um, so I'm going to figure out how to pronounce that word <laughs> because I thought um, that, that was that was appropriate. Oh, and then uh, shelters, women going to shelters with children. And if they have a son, they're not accepted. Like what? So then she's stuck at home or, you know, leaving her son behind. I mean, when is that going to happen, right? Uh, so it's a situation of not being able to get any help. The income I thought was interesting from the perspective of that was almost 45 years ago. And like, it's being talked about now, like it's a whole new thing. <laughs> and obviously it's not. Um, Anyway, okay, I think I think I've said my piece. This was a really powerful chapter. And um, thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you for sharing, Marla. Appreciate that. Um, I wanted to bring up something because, uh, you know, it kind of a theme that we all talked about was, you know, accountability of politicians. But um, at the end of the day, I know a lot of people may not understand the gravity of this, but because our governments have failed us, continue to fail us, and show no freaking hope of ever helping us, um, I wanted to really point to community care. And um, it, it was actually Taylor McNally and her group of Inclusive, Inclusive Canada that's really focused a lot more on community care. Uh, Bear Clan, they do that as well. So like we get a lot of messages for hampers and we'll go out and distribute hampers to people who need them. And uh, there's no barriers to it, right? Like we, we just give it to them without um, evasive questions like uh, food, shelter, whatever would be. Um, so for folks who are like, you know, you can't hold these politicians to account. So maybe the $50 that normally you would spend by giving it to a politician, maybe you could reconsider funneling that to, you know, uh, Taylor McNally's um, trust fund that she has going on because of our legal fund, sorry, for, um, you know, she had the audacity to call out police for their racism and she's being punished hard for it. So there's a call out for, you know, legal fees. Uh, Bear Clan, you can donate directly to Bear Clan. I'm a big advocate for um, Awuton Healing Lodge and, uh, you know, paying, paying people for their knowledge. Um, I set up, uh, you know, you can donate to me and there's a Patreon account for folks who want to listen to my podcast regularly. So like you can donate to organizations that are trying to do that work. Edmonton has a two-spirit society, you know, so um, maybe doing fundraisers and giving directly to the folks on the ground, uh, that is a way to help um, contribute in a positive way. And uh, so I, I do encourage that for folks who are listening and feeling kind of helpless because politicians are so unaccountable for actually moving forward on all of this. Um, but we as, you know, treaty partners, 
as folks interested in reconciliation, trying to do that good work, can funnel our money into projects like that, that we feel passionate for. Um, you know, if you're an arts person and you like artistic uh, development, there are Indigenous organizations that are focused on art that you can donate to. So I just wanted to have folks think a little bigger there in the hopes that maybe, um, oh, and I can't believe I haven't said this yet. Um, Canada, Calgary is about to open up the very first ever LGBTQ two plus recovery center called Stonewall. So Stonewall Recovery Center. And I was lucky enough to be at their bricks and mortar gala that they had this weekend. Um, I did the land acknowledgement and then we had a wonderful evening of performances from the queer community and then uh, silent auctions and then an actual auction with an actual auctioneer. And that was really fun uh, to be a part of that evening. But here's the thing, there's only like three in North America, zero in Canada. So this will be the first one in Canada. And it's important because a lot of recovery uh, centers, especially in Calgary, Alberta, are Christian-based, you know, uh, punishment-focused, uh, abstinence-focused, and that's not helping anybody in recovery. I don't believe in that in any capacity, which is why I did the White Bison Society um, programming through uh, Wellbriety. I believe that that is a better way of doing it. Anyway, regardless, that's another organization one you could donate to is the Stonewall Recovery Center. And, um, you know, they're, they're working on being two-spirit inclusive because there is racism in, within the queer community against um, QT BIPOC. So th there will be work to be done there as well. And, uh, you know, but at the end of the day, at least that's, that's a place. And, and that's why I don't understand why, you know, we have the, all these orders of government claiming, oh my God, I'm such an ally and I so believe in reconciliation and, you know, reducing violence against Indigenous people, but then where's the funding? Why doesn't Stonewall um, not just, you know, have its own recovery center? Why aren't they using the talking points of, of the importance of this that's laid out through this entire report, one, and also through the TRC it's laid out? So, you know, it, it, it is purposeful at this point and and highlighting the ignorance of our politicians claiming to be allies but clearly not getting it and not doing the work and not funding the very organizations that would help as laid out in these um, recommendations and just chapter 11 alone right so I wanted to throw that out uh, Mike I want to invite you to unmute yourself and then we'll have Paul and Rosemary on standby please Um, so thank you, Michelle, for having us here and for helping us. Um, I don't have a lot to say. I do kind of, and I think maybe it was touched on by Michelle and Kat, and even in the question Jen asked, when I was reading about the equitable representation, and I can't really see the page, I think it's 88 or 89. And it kind of made me think about why, why sort of excuses or reason, not, not reasons, excuses people in power make that we don't do things, that things don't get done. And it's really about um 
that there's not a voice like there's that and i think michelle said it that you know you don't speak on behalf of others you speak on behalf of what you know and then i think like there's because of all the the different um intersectionality that it can be used as a excuse that we can't do anything because we don't understand you know the entire picture and i think that's something i wanted to reflect more on and just say that you don't have to necessarily get the entire picture from everyone in order to do something right and that if you want to do something you can do something and that i mean i i come from a position like i'm a white man so you know it's it's difficult for me some times to understand how that that can come up you know that i don't understand things but that doesn't give me the right or that, that i should still be asking questions and try and understand and try and think about ways to move forward so i mean i think that to me was one of the things that i noticed in this chapter was right there's a lot to the the system of oppression that's in place but we don't have to understand the entire system in order to actually do something i love that i was snapping along paul please don't hesitate come on in um good evening everyone my name is paul i'm from Oakland, California, and the San Francisco Bay Area originally, currently living in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Um, I'm also primarily in the learning mode. So thank you all for, for sharing. Um, there were a couple of points that I wanted to make that I took from the reading from the report. One is that I'm interested in how communities can learn and share with each other. So there are three communities in particular that I follow and participate in. Um, one is the various Michigan coalitions fighting pipelines um, and certain energy groups here in the state of Michigan. And secondly, there's um, a group I belong to called um, the um, Rights of African IDPs, indigenous, indig or internally displaced persons. And the third is a group in uh, Project Drawdown. And some of their affiliates and coalitions around the world, especially what young people are doing. And I am really heartened by the work that people do on the ground and in, in, very interested in how the work that you all are involved in and are doing can be shared um, with those other groups, um, things about education and participation. So um, that's the first point. The second is in reading the report, I realized how much they challenge my ingrained and just basic beliefs, things that I kind of just take for granted. So uh, what really jumped out at me was on page 91, a reference to how Maslow's hierarchy of needs doesn't necessarily um, fit in with some of the indigenous peoples in Canada. And that just really jumped out at me because I've always taken that as a basic um, tenant 
But what was suggested is that perhaps there are other organizations or other philosophies like the medicine wheel that might be more appropriate. You so know, just, I, I'm just going to cut in right there because I don't know if you know, but um, that um, Maslow's pyramid was actually stolen from the Blackfoot and misused. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, so if you actually look a little deeper into that hierarchy, you'll actually find out that um, because he misused it, he, he spent some time with the Blackfoot, um, appropriated what he liked, created his um, system there, but he, he left out some really important parts. Um, and that's why I, I just, I'm gonna bring it up for folks who may not know of that, who are, who are unaware. And because I'm in Blackfoot territory, if I didn't, I would be a really bad treaty partner to not mention that. So uh, I'll pass it back to you. Thank you. No, that's exactly what I'm uh, mentioning is that um, we have so much to learn. I have so much to learn about just basic tenets and basic beliefs and the origins of some of those beliefs. So thank you. That's all I wanted to say. Well, thank you so much for, for chiming in there. I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate you all um, giving your, your time to this book club. And Rosemary, I think you're up next. Hi, thank you. Um, so yeah, this, this was a critical chapter because it tied so many of the earlier themes in the report together, you know, we had separate chapters on safety <coughs> and on culture and on violence against women. <clears throat> and it pulled things together. And I really appreciated that it was based on these guided discussions uh, among Inuit, Métis and <clears throat> the LBGTQ2S plus community because it really demonstrated the, the commonalities, right? With, with what was expressed in the report as a whole, but especially what was um, significantly different for each community and how we have to take that into account. Um, and I think, you know, Michelle, you've already <clears throat> spoken um, to, to, to us uh, issues you know, and, and how that comes through in so many ways. And, and again, ways I've not thought about before. Um, and things to think about. Uh, I really appreciated the uh, whole section on the Haudenosaunee Thanksgiving address and the words of the Cayuga elder who talked about it. <clears throat> because I think it, if you read that address, <clears throat> it really kind of spells out in detail what we depend on um, different parts of mother nature for, you know, whether it's the birds or the water or the grasses or the plant foods. And so it, it starts to build a better understanding of uh, how we're receiving all the time. And hopefully then we start thinking about what do we, what do we need to do in return? What, what's the, where's, the reciprocity in that relationship. Um, so I really appreciated that. I appreciated the, the more in-depth discussion on child welfare. I've read the calls to justice around child welfare, but this really um, fleshed them out and again, brought out all those themes from the past, like continuity of, of care for children and the impact of uh, being dislocated from your family. Um, 
and I intend to go back to that and read it more as we do the work around child welfare and the reconciliation action group. Um, also, uh, <clears throat> but, and, and I knew there was a call for justice for a guaranteed annual livable income, it's called to Justice 4.5, but I hadn't realized they had a whole section on MIMCOM. And of course this report was being put together <clears throat> when there was, a, there, there have been more, pilot, more recent pilot projects in Ontario, which was stopped, right? When the Ford government uh, came in and other efforts. And, and those who are basic income advocates we know about that history of Manitoba. There's a beautiful film called The Manitoba Story, and we show it in many of our basic income workshops to give people that sense of history, how it's been tried in the past. How, you know, it's, the proof is there. It's, again, it's that issue of political will, right, on the part of the government. And the only way there's going to be political will is if we're all involved and we, we push. And <clears throat> in terms of you know, research and extractive research. Uh, we've been involved uh, in sharing circles um, led by uh, members of, of We're Together Ending Poverty, but also, um, <clears throat> sorry, staff from the Aboriginal Friendship Center of Calgary. And we've been holding quite a few uh, in uh, the Forest Lawn area. And there are quite a few Indigenous community members coming. And even before that, we did them online. And we've really gone out of our way to uh, involve Indigenous community members. And we're very aware of that issue of you know, extraction. And, and so we've, we've been in the process of setting up a system where we, we, we get back to people and we say, this is what we've been doing, right? With what you've told us. Um, not naming names, of course. And also we um, update them, like what's happening with basic income. And of course, it, I don't think it's an accident that one of the key people um, involved in the basic income movement in Canada among politicians is Leah Gazan, who's the New Democrat uh, MP for Winnipeg Centre. And she's the author of big basic income bill that's before parliament right now. Uh, it's before the House of Commons. And then uh, Kim Pate, who's a senator, is introduced exactly the same bill. And what I really appreciate in Leah Gazan's bill, I've heard her speak to it, is that before anything is designed, right? Like everyone wants, well, not everyone, for those of us who support basic income, we don't have a design yet. We have different models that people could use. But she's saying everyone who's marginalized here in Canada, they have to be at the table to design that, that policy or that framework or how it moves ahead. People with disabilities, indigenous peoples, members of the LBGTQS plus community, those who are racialized, uh, women, you know, and, and that reflects what was being talked about here, right? I think in, in this chapter 11, you need those diversity of voices and perspectives so you don't have people falling through the cracks in these policies that get designed. Um, just two things I wanna end on, <clears throat> the section on language. 
I mean, and what you said, Michelle, it resonates. You know, I, I spent time trying to learn Irish Gaelic when I still had my eyesight and could drive myself to my lessons. And there is a sense of profound loss when you feel that you, it's different, right? We, I, I and my ancestors came as colonizers and participated in the process of, um, uh, dumb, you know, stealing the language or taking people away from their language or the language away from people. And at the same time, some of us who came, we also had our languages taken from us when we arrived here. You know, they're just gone. Like, you know, you had ancestors who came speaking it and then it's gone. Just this homogenization process. But there was a beautiful um, section where the, uh, there was a Maliseet elder who talked about she sings lullabies to babies when they're in the womb. I just found that very moving. And then she talked about <clears throat> how, you know, we go on and on in colonial culture about, oh, it's a boy, it's a girl. But within her, the context of her culture and her language, you greet babies with, I've been waiting for you. I just thought that was so profoundly beautiful. And then the last thing, oh, wow, when they were talking about art and uh, they, they talked about art, art being a way to let the ancestors speak through your body. And that's a very powerful thing to think about. So I'll just leave that there. That was wonderful. Thank you, Rosemary. I appreciate that. Shelly, you're next. Hi, everyone. I had some really moving, not moving, but like aha moments. On page 85, it, it's a quote that's used a lot in disability, nothing about us without us, and they in the Métis perspective at the table. But that's basically when translated from Latin, that's what it means is at the table. And I thought, well, because I always got really kind of cranky that like it's a disability thing and it's being used by other marginalized groups. But I'm like, Shelly, it's intersectionality. And I think what it was is because a lot of times disabilities left off. But this report talked about disability. It talked about fetal alcohol in one aspect, in one of the, um, uh, in one of the, talked about that. And also on page 92, sorry, I'm going to go back to that. It's every, every marginalized group, if they're being talked about, they should be at the table. It's like with women's right, reproductive rights, like a whole, a whole table of men deciding that, that makes no sense. That's, that's the <laughs> best one I could think of, which is happening in the States, unfortunately. Um, and then on page 92, it sees the wholeness of people beyond labels, such as mental health diagnoses, convictions, adverse experiences, ethnicity, gender, et cetera. That would be lovely to see beyond the labels. But sometimes in our capitalistic society, labels get you funding. And, and and that's or it, it's a double-edged sword it can get you funding or it can get you nothing because the, the program goes oh, i don't want to deal with you um i found this very um very i got about halfway through because it was just so how everybody was talking about it it was just so impactful 
and that realizing that when they talk about addictions, addictions is a disability. It goes under disability because it's a mental health. And they're ignoring because it has the UNDRIP and then it also has the declaration of, I can't remember what it's called, but the UN has the disability declaration as well. And Canada has signed on to it. And that they're not following it as well because they're ignoring and letting the ongoing genocide of Indigenous peoples with disabilities as well, because with all the colonial colonial stuff that's happened has with it just really sucks that they sign on to all this stuff and they don't do it. They it's they don't have the four, they only want to do anything for four years. And these are systemic issues that nobody wants to touch that will take longer than four years. Four years doesn't do anything when you're talking about poverty or like you shouldn't have to be sober to get a house, housing first, and then then harm reduction. Like harm reduction is even in with eating disabilities or eating disorders, sorry. And it just, it's just so frustrating as an autistic person. I don't speak for all disabilities. I just know what I know and on my journey is that we're ignored and we're over we're over-researched and especially the unhoused population is over-researched and they know what to do. They just have, they lack the political will. I could go on, but I'm gonna stop. Well, um, I think now is a good time to talk about the fact that the Liberal um, government right now has a disability uh, act or disability bill that they're trying to make an act on the table. And, uh, you know, this Carla Quattro, I can't remember her name, but, you know, she's the minister in charge and I'm not hearing her reference Indigenous people feed, um, and any of the calls to action, any calls to justice. So, you know, I, I think it's important to bring up that intersectionality and, uh, of course, the conversation about MAID. You know, um, I'm so disappointed that, you know, basic income is being something as a second thought before a first thought. And people yeah. are choosing MAID as, a, as an answer to the lack, that, lack of housing and the lack of basic income and the lack of dignity and, and of folks with disabilities that face in this country. So yeah, it's, there's a lot to unpack there with a, with a, dis a, a, a lens of a disability. So yeah, so thank you. And I'm just and, gonna... um, sorry, I just, I'm so happy that, I'm not happy, but I'm glad that they shut down the MAID part two or something, where if you have a dis uh, mental health, you could go through MAID. But I think that was shut down last time I heard. Thank you so much. Wendy, you're up next. Hey, thank you. Um, thank you, uh, everyone, for the conversation tonight. I took lots from this chapter, but many of the things have been mentioned already. So I'll just pull a couple things from my notes. Um, and then a couple things that I took away just from our conversation. Um, I. My first note was on the strengthening of accountability. Um, so I, what I wrote down was the part where it talked about safeguards to ensure implementation despite shifts in government. So that really got me thinking, I think 
several times, different readings we've done, um, we've been reminded of the importance of seven, seven generational thinking from Indigenous people and just thinking longer term than um, any of us in white settler cultures have thought about. Um, but, you know, in the light of all the conversations we've been having about government decisions and elections and choices and just as that fluctuates, how it kind of can fully stop things um, really got me thinking about, you know, why do we accept that? Like, why do we accept that the government can just come up with a new platform and a new shiny way of saying, I don't know, just twisted around words that aren't telling us very much. Um, and so, you know, I, it got me thinking about why people, when do they get um, interested in support uh, what is being done and and just got me thinking about how, you know, they're really trying to tweak people's um, excitement or anger about something. They're not actually operating from a really foundational place of thinking about the world and, and improving lives and livelihoods. So, um, so yeah, so that took me to some pretty interesting places, um, but, but also, you know, connected to the, the challenges of, of having these conversations every day. So I think earlier tonight, circles were in, um, I find the more that I read about this and the more that I think about this, I am observing how challenging it can be to kind of push people to these deeper, more meaningful issues. Um, so yeah, that, that took me down a whole kind of spiral of thinking. And then another piece I really liked, which, which got me thinking not only about those impacts that we have on having these very surface conversations a lot of the time, um, when we communicate with one another um, was that idea of connectivity. I think earlier in our discussion tonight, we talked about how a lot of things are in the system working together. So the note that I had made was the part uh, for page 100. It was a little bit before that. And it talked about um, reducing administrative burdens and creating efficiencies and use that Métis sash metaphor. So they talked about um, if you pull one thread out of a sash and, and you found a solution for that thread, how would you ever put it back into the sash? And so just really liked that thinking because it got me thinking about why it's not even like you could take each unit and see change and impact and improvement require like ongoing awareness of, of others. And um, that's non-trivial. So, I mean, that's likely why it hasn't yet happened um, at our, at our government level, but also that we don't, we don't expect that of them. Um, so that gave me some interesting thoughts there. Um, I had some notes um, on page 101. This, these were some of the things that we've already talked about around language, but just in seeing the comments and the quote from uh, Governor General Adrian Clarkson uh, about this international imperative. And I was like, well, that was several governor generals ago. Um, so it reminded me of the inaction part that's going on. Um, and, and also got me thinking about all the things happening online right now uh, to our current governor general. Um, and that uh, she's standing up and speaking out about uh, some of the really awful treatment that she's receiving, um, the, the very racist, um, awful ways that uh, that she's being attacked. So, you know, I appreciate her leadership, but also, you know, that many of us need to be observing that. Um, and so, yeah, so then many of the notes uh, remaining just kind of were, as I was reflecting on the readings and listening to what other people were saying, I feel like this chapter really helped me to see and almost tangibly hold on to um, what we mean when we say we're talking about systemic barriers, because like the whole list of every action they kind of listed out about what would be needed, what would change look like, um, like easily I could think of different people in my life where I could bring these things up 
if we were talking about the houselessness, if we were talking about dealing with addiction, like all of those kinds of things, I could easily imagine how easily those arguments, you know, things get dismissed, assumptions get made. Um, there really isn't a whole lot of nuanced outlook um, to what it takes to actually lift lift people up. Um, and and it is hard when you look at your system and you realize the system isn't intended to be lifting people up. It isn't intending to serve people. It is it is intending to do a totally different purpose. Um, and it just got me thinking about um, about that. But um, I guess my last thought was really, you know, uh, Rosemary made some great points about how this really highlighted the different communities and and got us thinking about. Um, the Métis and the Inuit and the LGBTQ2S plus. Um, so it was, you could see the commonalities, but you could also see the really distinct different needs um, and and insights. Um, so I liked that it was grouped together in that way, but I also liked that it gave a really good window into what each of those groups is thinking about and what the impacts feel like for them. And um, so, th so there was quite a lot that I took away from this chapter, thanks. No, I'm really glad you talked about it. I've seen a few folks like, thank you for addressing that because the systemic racism component, especially, I just don't think, I just don't think people get it. And I really hope that this chapter helped kind of baby step people to see it. And I think going together in a good way. So I'm, I'm hoping that people will really get a lot from this. I'm, I can tell a lot of you did. So I'm really grateful for that. And I just wanted to um, thank you all for coming. I wanted to let you know that uh, next month, uh, I can't believe next month is already April and our next book club will be the true uh, spirit and original intent of Treaty 7 by Treaty 7 and the tribal councils. So um, I don't know if you remember, but I kind of asked, I, I wanted you to be thinking about things as you go into it, you know, your feelings going into the section were you surprised by the end of the selection after you read it? What did you learn? Um, what Indigenous worldview did you understand from the selection that maybe you didn't understand before? Uh, what intersections are missing? What triggers would you recommend for that particular one? Um, what would you want the authors to know that you learned about the selection like mattered to you? Uh, would you recommend it to others? Who would you tell about this selection and why? Were there solutions, joy, humorous moments that you remember? Just because, you know, sometimes reading a book can be fun, should be fun, but, you know, some of the subjects are tough, but I find especially Indigenous elders have a lot of funny things to say. If you were to write a letter to your elected official, what would the main points be? Would you consider writing a review publicly? Because as you know, Indigenous authors generally have racist things and the governor general was kind of brought up as an example, um, you know, for this particular selection, you know, I really encourage people to consider writing your elected officials and talk about the importance of Stonewall recovery, talk about the importance of uh, the calls to injustice that, and recommendations throughout chapter 11 for the uh, two-spirit community, the non-binary, trans, uh, lesbian, gay, bisexual community of Indigenous people that have so much diversity to it and how all of their policies are, are failing. Uh, so, you know, just some things I want you to think about for the next selection and, and maybe you feel after reading this selection compelled to write uh, your elected officials 
to talk about whether it's basic income, whether it's um, any uh, housing that was mentioned throughout this, whatever it might be. So, um, and a reminder what our next book club is. So thank you all for coming. I, we're about two minutes over. So I apologize for that, but I'll stay on for any other reflections that people uh, have and go from there. Thanks folks. And thanks for those great links in the in the comment sections as well.